Years ago, I read an article in a magazine. And the article was titled, Messly, Costly, Dirty Ministry. And I want to read a part of it to you. It says, The Tuesday night prayer meeting at the Brooklyn Tabernacle felt like skydiving into a tornado. Exhausting and exhilarating all at once. I'd read about the meeting in Pastor Jim Cimbala's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. But nothing prepared me for the event itself. 3,500 God-hungry people storming heaven for two hours. Afterward, my friend and I went out to dinner with the Cymbalas. And in the course of the meal, Jim turned to me and said, Mark, do you know what the number one sin of the church in America is? I wasn't sure, and the question was rhetorical anyhow. He said, it's not the plague of internet pornography that's consuming our men. It's not the divorce rate in the church that's roughly the same as society at large. Jim named two or three other candidates for the worst sin, all of which he dismissed. The number one sin in the church in America, he said, is that pastors and leaders are not on their knees crying out to God. Bring us the drug addicted. Bring us the prostitutes. Bring us the destitute. Bring us the gang leaders. Bring us those with AIDS. Bring us those no one else wants, whom only you can heal. And let us love them in your name till they are whole. The author of the article goes on to say that he found that all very convicting because he was one of those pastors who had never prayed to God to bring those kind of a people to his church. And and I, I know we all invite and we pray for people to come to our church, for people to be here, but what kind of people do we envision God bringing into our church? What kind of people do we look for when we look for opportunities to invite people to our church? There's a church sign, and I've never found where it really was, and I'm hoping it was some sort of joke and not the reality. But I wonder if there's not more truth to this sign than sometimes we want to admit. Wanted. People just like us. And while this may be true, is it right? Should our focus be on people who are just like us? Who already know how to dress and how to talk? Already have a a similar worldview than we, we do? Already kind of maybe vote the way we would vote or feel the way we feel about the issues of the day? People who may basically have the same basic morality that we have? Or should we reach out to those that would lead us to having what the author called a messy, costly, dirty ministry? I want to try to answer that question today by looking at something God had in mind for the people of Israel once they came into the land. So Joshua 20, if you haven't already found it, it should be on page 183 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand up to honor the reading of God's Word. Joshua 20, I'm going to read the whole chapter. And the Lord also spake to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he that doth flee into one of these cities shall come and stand at the entering of the gate of the city, shall declare his cause to the ears of the elders of that city. They shall take him into the city unto him, 
and give him a place that he may dwell among them. And if the avenger of blood pursue after him, then they shall not deliver the slayer up into his hand, because he smote his neighbor unwittingly and hated him not before time. And he shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the high priest that shall be in those days. Then shall the slayer return and come into his own city and into his own house and into the city from whence he fled. And they appointed Kadesh in Galilee, Naphtali in Shechem in the Mount Ephraim, in, and Kirjath Arba, which is in Hebron, the Mount of Judah. And on the other side of Jordan, by Jericho, eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness upon the plain of the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead out of the tribe of Gad, Golan in Bashan out of the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourneth among them, that whosoever killeth any person at unawares might flee thither and not die by the hand of the avenger of the blood till he stood before the congregation. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We gather this morning with a desire to hear from your word. Our time now, Lord, is for you. As we come, make us to have open ears and open hearts ready to receive what you have for us to learn. The lesson of these cities of refuge, what they mean for us all these years later as a church. Help us, Father, to understand, Lord, how we can be this and what we can do. Lord, to understand your heart really is for the messy, costly, dirty people in the world around us. And that our hearts beat like yours do for them and for their salvation. Guide in this time and help us to lay aside any cares of life we may have brought in. Help us to not be distracted by anything that's beeping or bopping or clamoring for our attention at this time. But just to be present with you in this moment, in this time. And let your word and your spirit work together to strengthen us if we need strengthening. To encourage us if we need encouraging. To challenge us if we need challenging. To convict us if we need convicting. To save us if we need saving. And to restore us if we need restoring. You know what needs to be done in our hearts and our lives. Do it today. Do it in the name of Jesus. Do it through the power of the spirit. Do it for your glory we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Part of the allotment of the land was for what is called cities of refuge. And the cities of refuge were a part of God's gracious provision for the people of the time, but they do foreshadow something greater. So we want to understand the purpose for the cities of refuge. Right, so Moses, or it writes down here that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee to the city of refuge from the avenger of the blood. So the culture of the time, typically the way justice was kind of meted out upon people, was if someone was killed by another person, then what would happen is the family of the person killed would get together and they would have kind of a family meeting and they would choose a member of their family to be the avenger of the blood of their family that was shed. And his job, his only job at that point, was then to chase down the person who killed the member of their family and kill them in an act of justice and retribution for what he had done to your family. This sort of primitive justice was normal for the culture of the day. But there was an obvious problem that could have, that could be potential for this kind of justice that would cause a, a blood feud to start. So think about it this way. What happens? If I'm elected as the avenger of the blood, 
of my family. And my job is to go kill Scott. But when Scott killed the person in my family, it was an accident. He, he didn't plan to. It was just things happened and the guy died as a result. Well, then I go and I kill Scott to avenge the blood of my family. Well, now the Watsons are, are feeling greatly violated because it was an unjust killing. So now they're going to convene at their own family meeting and they're going to elect an avenger of the blood to come and kill me because what I did was unjust. Well, then once their avenger kills me, my family's going to come back together again. And, and you see how this would start a, a spiral out of control where there is just a Hatfield and McCoy type feud going on all the time. Well, a part of God's solution to this sort of justice and this sort of vicious cycle of a blood feud were the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge were for those who killed someone unintentionally and without premeditation. And they could flee to the city of refuge and be spared from the avenger of the blood. So what would happen is if the person kills someone accidentally, right, again, unintentionally, without premeditation, Immediately, he flees to the nearest city of refuge. He goes to the city of refuge. He knocks on the gate. The elders come out to meet him. He tells him, I have killed someone accidentally, unpremeditated. And they would bring him into the city and they would give him refuge. Now, if the, the avenger of the blood comes to the city, the city would then say, I'm sorry, you can't have him. He is under our protection and he's safe here. And if the avenger of the blood went into the city and killed the guy anyway, he would then be guilty of murder and justice would be executed upon him. Now, according to Deuteronomy, though, Deuteronomy 19.11, there was a, and what we see here, there was a, a time of judgment. Right? So he was immediately given refuge. And then there was a day appointed in which he would stand before the elders of the city and before an appointed council, and he would plead his case. And he would explain more fully why he wasn't guilty of premeditated murder. The council, from what it looks like, would investigate. They would kind of do some sort of CSI-type investigation into the crime and see if it was. And if it was determined that he was indeed innocent of premeditated murder, he would be given refuge forever in the city. If, on the other hand, it was determined, no, no, he's lying to us, he's trying to take advantage of the system, and he is guilty of premeditated murder, they would either send for the avenger of the blood if he was not already at the city, or if he was already there, they would just be like, here you go, do what you've got to do. And justice would be executed upon him. Now, there were conditions upon living in the city of refuge. One, as I said, the murder had to be unintentional and without premeditation. We've already talked about that. Secondly, they actually had to go to the city. Right? You see in verse 4, when he that doth flee into one of the cities. So he had to actually go to the city. It wasn't enough that if he killed someone accidentally to stand and say it was an accident. I had no premeditation. I didn't intend to do it. This is just the way the world happened and the tree fell or whatever and it happened. It wasn't my fault. I didn't intend to do this. It didn't matter. The avenger of the blood could still take him down, execute him in whatever manner they chose to do it, and it would still be a justified killing. 
the person who killed actually had to flee to the city. If he did not go to the city, he would still be fair game for the avenger. There was no refuge, there was no sanctuary outside the city. Right? And according to Numbers 35, 26 and 28, they actually had to remain in the city. Once they were given refuge in the city, they were never allowed outside the city limits. They had to stay within the city for the rest of their lives or until the high priest died. And if they went outside the city gates, if they went outside the perimeter of the city and the avenger of the blood saw them, he could then execute them and it would be an acceptable murder. He was fair game outside the city. And again, he had to stay there for either the remaining of his life or until the high priest had died. You see in verse 6, uh, he would stay till the, high, till the death of the high priest. According to the law, premeditated murder could not be atoned for ever in any way. Someone who committed premeditated murder was to be executed without pity, without remorse, without mercy of any kind. Um, similarly, no atonement could be made for unintentional death. But the killer could be spared from the judgment, the death, if he lived within the city of refuge. And he stayed there throughout the life of of the high priest or until he died, whichever came first. Only the death of the high priest freed them from the guilt of, sl- of taking another human life. And then we want to notice the locations of the city. There were six cities set aside to be cities of refuge. They were specific cities in specific locations and they were there for a specific reason. While the names and locations are largely meaningless to us, they were significant in the land. God chose the places the the cities of refuge would be because there was nowhere in the nation where a city of refuge was more than a day's journey. Right, So they were strategically located. So no matter where you were within the promised land, you you were one day's journey from the city of refuge. This ensured everyone had equal access to the city's refuge. Of refuge, And one final thing about the cities is it wasn't just for the Israelites. You see in verse 9, it was for the children of Israel and the strangers that sojourned among them. So the, the refuge for killing someone accidentally or without premeditation, it was open to all. You didn't have to be a Jew. You didn't have to be a, a Gentile convert to Judaism. If you were just someone who lived within the promised land, killed someone accidentally... You could flee to the city of refuge and the law worked the same for you as it did for a natural born Jew. Now, that's the, the kind of the gist of the cities of refuge. And what I want us to see is there is something bigger that's a picture here. Right? There are various similarities to the gospel within the cities of refuge. Right? For instance, people had to flee to the cities for refuge... And and we must flee to Jesus for salvation. There was an escape for someone who killed someone without premeditation and or killed them unintentionally. There was an escape, but it wasn't automatic. The only way to find refuge, the only way to find safety was to flee to the city of refuge. It's very similar with the gospel. Jesus has died. 
And Jesus has risen again. And the salvation is open to whosoever will. But it's not enough to know there is a Savior that has died. It's not enough to know that there is salvation for the sinner. We must flee to Jesus. The Gospel of Mark puts it this way. And Jesus said unto them, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Right? Believing in Jesus, this is fleeing to Jesus. This is what it means to go to Jesus. It is great for us to know the gospel story. It is great for us to know the Bible stories. It's great for us to be able to answer maybe doctrinal questions about the Bible. But none of that saves us. None of that is enough. We must flee to Jesus. And we flee to Jesus by believing on Jesus. And it is only when we believe upon Jesus are we saved. If we don't flee to Jesus, we don't believe on Jesus, we will still be judged. We will still be damned. We will still be condemned. And how tragic. How tragic to die Lost and suffer the judgment for eternity when a Savior has died and a Savior has risen and He has offered salvation and you, all you had to do was flee to Him. Also, another similarity is the death of the high priest freed them from, freed them from guilt and the death of our high priest frees us from guilt. But once the high priest had died, the guilt of the slayer was removed. It was, it was as though he had not killed anyone. He could leave the city. He could go home, back to his own life. And he could go back to his family. He could do everything he had done before. And the avenger of the blood had no right to kill him. Had no right whatsoever to avenge him. And if he did, that would be a whole different murder. And the avenger himself then would be subject to the judgment of killing another human being. Similarly, Jesus, our high priest died to free us from the guilt of our sins. Hebrew says, neither by the blood of bulls and goats and calves, or goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once in the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, are sprinkling the unclean, sanctified through the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, to purge our conscience from the dead works, to serve the living God? Now, here's the great thing, right? The high priest died and his, I guess, earthly guilt was removed. And they couldn't be judged. His judicial guilt was removed. I put it that way. But what would, how would he feel, I wonder? I mean, I can't imagine accidentally taking someone's life. I think that would weigh heavily upon him. I mean, humans weren't meant to kill other people. That's why it's such a high judgment bar. That's why there's no... Redemption from it in the Old Testament. How would we feel if we had done something like that? The guilt, the, the guilt would probably never go away. His judicial guilt was gone, but the other guilt would still be there for, forever, I would imagine. But Jesus is greater than the death of Jesus is greater than the death of the high priest. See, the death of the goats and the bulls, the old sacrificial system, all it could do was sort of remove the, the judicial guilt for sin. But Jesus offered Himself to do something more. 
not just remove our judicial guilt. That's been done. There is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. Our judicial guilt for our sins is gone, never to be brought back. But we remember, don't we? I do. I remember what I was like. I remember what I did. I remember who I was. And at times, that weighs me down. At times, that is a load I have to to bear. I can't stand it. But Jesus is greater than the high priest of the Old Testament. His death not only removes the judicial guilt, His death also is able to remove the other guilt that we have. He says He can purge our conscience. Imagine. Imagine there being no guilt over your past. Looking and saying, someone saying, I remember you. I know that you did that. And rather than being brought down low by it, just going, that's true. Thank you, Jesus. That's not who I am anymore. I mean, it's gone. The guilt for our past, the guilt for our sins has been taken away. Not just our judicial guilt, but the guilt that weighs on our conscience. Jesus, His blood does something better than what the high priest did. His blood does something better than what the blood of the bulls and the goats could do. His blood not only removes our judicial guilt, but it removes the guilt in our conscience. All of this is available through Christ to those who would flee to Jesus for refuge. Another way the gospel and the cities of refuge are similar, the city of refuge were for everyone. And the gospel is for everyone. So we saw in verse 9, the city of refuge weren't just for the Israelites. Anyone living in the land who happened to kill someone accidentally and without premeditation was welcome to flee to those cities. In the same way, the gospel is for all people. Probably the most familiar verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever will. That's who the Gospel's for. What about that person? Whosoever will. What about people who live there? Whosoever will. What about people who did that? Whosoever will. The Gospel is for everyone. Any person who will turn to Jesus can and will be saved. The gospel is for everyone. This is something that should, well, it should be amazing to us. I mean, think about it. The gospel, the church, began in Jerusalem in what, like 33, 34 A.D.? But it wasn't just for the Jews who lived in Jerusalem at that time. Because God is not a tribal God. Jesus is not a regional deity. The church gave their lives to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That every language and tribe and nation and tongue could know the gospel, could know Jesus and be saved. To the point that the gospel traveled from Jerusalem where there was 120 people or so. And it traveled from there until one day in Guymon, Oklahoma, somebody traveled in here with the gospel message that for the very first time. And then the gospel was planted and churches grew and we came to know Christ. 
I am glad the gospel is for everyone. Because that means whosoever will includes me. Another way the gospel was, or the city's refuge was similar to the gospel, is a city was near everywhere. Right? There was a city of refuge, a day's journey from everywhere in Israel. Everyone had equal access. Everyone had the opportunity to go there. In the same way, Jesus is close to all. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Think about that. A person can be saved. They can believe in Jesus and they can call on Jesus and they can be saved. But, but what if they don't understand the inspiration and the authority of Scripture? They call upon Jesus, they will be saved. But what if they're living in this kind of a lifestyle? They need to clean themselves up first. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What, what, if, what if there's this or what if there's that? I mean, you think about it. Jesus is right there. No one has to clean themselves up. That They don't have to try to get everything lined out in their lives. They don't have to, to work it out and so they are perfect and clean and pure and ready. And then they can come to Jesus. No, He's right there. He's so close that any person anywhere can simply call upon the name of the Lord and they will be saved. He is near everyone, everywhere, all the time. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then another way, the final way, cities of refuge are like the gospel. Both were God's idea. You see in verse 1 and 2, that it was God who told Moses about the cities of refuge. It was God who told Moses where to put the cities of refuge. Everything about the cities of refuge were all God's idea. In the same way, the gospel comes from the heart and the mind of God and was always God's idea. Peter says, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained for the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Just some things that aren't necessarily pertaining to this particular aspect. We were not redeemed by corruptible things. <laughs> And I like that it uses silver and gold. That's the most valuable things in the world today. And what we were redeemed by is far infinitely more valuable than that. We weren't redeemed by the traditions we received from those who have come before us. Instead, we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without spot and blemish. And I know we know this, but just there should always be a time in our lives, a regular I don't know, I'm not going to say every day, but regularly. We just think about what Jesus went through for us. Right? He, he, didn't, he didn't redeem us by just blessing. Be blessed. He didn't redeem us by living a good life. He didn't redeem us by doing miracles. He redeemed us through His blood that was shed in one of the most violent and painful and miserable ways to die that existed in the ancient world. I mean, we have people today who oppose the death penalty because they find it to be barbaric. And yet, 
the reality is de- the death penalty by lethal injection or I don't know if they even do the electric chair anywhere anymore. But those are far more humane than the crucifixion. It was miserable. It was intended. It was, it was devised to cause the people to die, but to suffer long and hard before they die. Jesus did that for us. I mean, that's what our salvation cost. The life's blood of God's Son in a horrible way. He didn't cut His hand and, and squeeze it out on something and be like, we're good. No, he, he bore it out. It bled out through His back, which was shredded with the whipping. It bled out through His hands and wrists, which were pierced with nails. It bled out through His face, which had been beaten and abused. It bled out through His side when He had been stabbed with the spear. It bled out all over. In horribly painful ways. For our redemption. For our salvation. And this was always the plan. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. We talked in our Sunday school class this morning about the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And Adam and Eve sinned. And God confronts them. And then He tells them, but there's going to come a day when the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And the serpent will bruise his heel. But eventually, the Messiah wins. This was the plan, but this didn't come into being right then. It wasn't like Adam and Eve sinned and God's like, oh man, I didn't know this was happening. Now what am I going to do? Is anybody going to, anybody willing to die? Hey, can we get somebody maybe go to heaven, go to earth maybe some point and maybe do something about this? No, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation tells us. He was foreordained. This was always the plan. God always intended on Jesus to come and die for us. How amazing is our God? How glorious is he to think of us knowing our frame, knowing we are flawed, knowing our propensity to sin. And rather than saying, I will leave them in their sin and deliver them to their just judgment. He plans a way of salvation that cost him the most precious thing it could cost him. The lifeblood of his only begotten son. God is amazing. And while the the cities of refuge are similar to the gospel... The gospel is superior. There are many ways, but there's only one we have time to look at this morning. Cities of refuge are only for the innocent, but the gospel is for the guilty. Only those who had killed someone without premeditation or unintentionally could go to the city of refuge and find refuge. Those who had killed someone on purpose, even though they fled to the city of refuge, would be turned over to the avenger of blood and justice would be executed upon them. The gospel, though, it isn't merely for those who sin unintentionally or without premeditation. Oh, it's for them, but not merely for them. It is also for those who sin intentionally and with great premeditation. It is for those who say, I know what God has said, and ain't nobody, not even God, going to tell me what I can or cannot do. Look at what Paul says in the book of Romans. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith 
of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe. There is no difference. And a lot of this would deal with what we talked about with the cities of refuge. There is the salvation from God. It was God's idea. There's no difference. It's on those who believe, who flee to Christ. But here's why there's no difference. For all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. But in the idea of sin, there are three words used for sin in the Bible. One pictures missing the mark. You, you aim for what's best, but you just don't quite hit it. It's a marksmanship term. You shoot for the bullseye, but you, you're off a little bit. One deals with crossing a boundary. It's a trespass. There's a boundary here, and you, you go past it. You, you willingly and knowingly go past it. And then there is iniquity, which deals with a specific kind of sin. And the gospel is for those who have tried to live good lives. They tried to be moral. They tried to be right. They, they tried. They just weren't able to hit that mark. The gospel is for them. The gospel is also for those who knew the boundary. Those who were told, this is what God has said, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And they said, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. And they, they just thumbed their nose at God. They just said, I'm going to do whatever I want. They are very guilty of willful, premeditated, intentional sin against God. And the gospel is for them too. For there is no difference. They can be justified freely by His grace through faith in Jesus. And this is where all of what we're talked about with the cities of refuge connects to the messy ministry article I referenced at the beginning. The cities of refuge, in some ways, represent the gospel. And the church is the gospel, is a gospel mission. Therefore, a gospel mission is a place of refuge where the broken, the enslaved, and the guilty can come to find refuge, hope, and most importantly, Jesus. Are we, as a church... Ready to move forward to we are a city of refuge in the city of God. Are we willing to, to be a place, to be a refuge for sinners, dirty, guilty sinners? Are we ready to be a place where these dirty, guilty sinners can come and they can find refuge they can find hope, and most importantly, they can find Jesus. This is what we're all supposed to be. This is what our church, every church, is supposed to be. There is no one in our area, no matter what they've done, no matter what lifestyle they live, no matter anything else, they should be able to walk into our church and be welcomed with open arms. They should be able to walk in. And we would be genuinely glad to see them. They wouldn't feel judgmental stares at the back of their head. They wouldn't see people whispering. What are they doing in church? 
Instead, they would be welcomed here. They would be allowed here. And they would be given time. Time to see the goodness of God. Time where they could come and they could be free. And they could find hope. And they could find Jesus. As God calls our church forward, to be sure, He is calling our church forward to be that. But our church will not be that unless we as individuals are that. And there is a balance. Now, I will say this, and I don't have time for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You have to strike a balance, right? Sinners sin. That's what they do. It's who they are. So they should be welcomed, and they should be accepted, and they should be allowed to have the time they need to see their need for Christ and be saved. For very few people ever come to Christ the very first time they hear the gospel. I didn't. Did you? So they have to be given time, which means they're going to sin in the process. They're going to say inappropriate things. They're going to do inappropriate things. They're going to leave here and go do sinner things. And on the one hand, we have to we have to be willing to accept that. We have to say sinner sin. They need Jesus. At the same time, if they say, "Hey, I." I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go do this sin. Our response can't be, well, that's great. Have a good time. It's fine. There has to be the balance of the other Bible sin. That's a sin. And there has to be speaking the truth in love. Because if we affirm them in their sin, if we tell them their sin is fine, they see no need for Jesus. Why come to Jesus? My sin is okay. Everybody told me. At the same time, we can't be judgmental and they will say, my sin is too much. Jesus would never accept me because that's what everybody told me. It's the balance. Hard balance. The real balance we have to find. Our church will only be this, a gospel mission, where the uh, place of refuge, where the broken, enslaved, and guilty can come to find refuge, hope, and most importantly, Jesus. If you and I commit to being those kinds of people, because as I've said many times, our church, there is no nebulous organization called the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. There's just us. Whatever our church is, whatever our church does, is a reflection of us. If we are a gospel mission and a place of refuge, it's because you and I as individuals choose to be gospel missionaries and to be a place of refuge. And if we are judgmental and exclusionary, it is because you and I are judgmental and exclusionary. So the first work to be a gospel mission, it has to begin right here with me and right there with you in our hearts. Where we would say, God, kill the Pharisee within me. Kill the judge within me. Kill the gossip within me. Make me love the sinner the way you love them. And then we move on. This is what we're moving forward toward. In the book of Hebrews, it says that we who have fled for refuge, we lay hold of the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth to within the veil. 
Let's be sure we have fled to Christ for refuge. Let's be sure we have laid hope of the hold, laid hold of the hope before us. Let's be sure this hope is the anchor for our soul. And then let's be merciful and gracious. And allow others the same privileges and opportunities we've had. I'm going to take time and pray.